You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. But always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch you every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of Keyes. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his strike pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make a head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it, and uh, somebody else. Only I haven't got a single thing to go on, Keyes. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometimes, somewhere, they've got to meet. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Keith Gordon. Hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Kat Ellinger. I'm just here for the jism, sitting and knitting. That will hopefully make more sense later. <laughs> we conclude November with a look at double indemnity. Just as sure as ten dimes make a dollar, baby. It's one of the seminal works in the film noir canon. It stars Fred McMurray as the fast-talking Walter Neff, an insurance agent who gets played for a dope by a dame. The dame in question, Felix Dietrichson, is played by the one and only Barbara Stanwyck. The two cook up an insurance scam to pay off big after they bump off her husband. It's a tale of twists and turns that we will be spoiling along the way, so if you don't want to bust out crying, you better watch the film before listening to us flap our gums. So, Keith, when was the first time you saw Double Indemnity and and what did you think? I was either, I think, 12 or 13. It was when I was first really falling completely in love with movies and trying to see as much as I could. And I went with, like, my best movie buddy from junior high, this guy Paul Hackinger, still friendly with many, many years later. And we saw it at the Carnegie Hall Cinema, which was one of the great revival houses in New York that is no longer there. Uh, and I was... You know, predictably, I guess now, quite blown away because I had not really seen noir I was at that age, and I certainly hadn't seen anything like that. And everything about it was new to me. I and mean, Fred McMurray was the guy I knew from My Three Sons on TV and a couple of Disney movies. And and you know what I'd mostly seen of, of 
30s and 40s movies it tended to be more of the comedies and the you know his gal fridays and so basically this was my first time seeing a film that was that grown up and that dark and that complicated uh from that era and it kind of blew me away because the willingness to deal with everything from sex to real moral darkness was was very new to me i mean most of the films that i had been seeing had been more you know films that kids saw so to me, this was it was incredibly erotic and it was incredibly, you know, groundbreaking. And it was one of the first films where I felt really aware of the style of it, and I was really felt aware of how it was photographed. And so it was it was pretty thrilling. It was actually it had a it had a big impact um, because it was just a whole new world that I didn't even realize existed. How about you, Kat? I was a little bit older, maybe fifteen or sixteen. It was either late eighties or early nineties, but I watched it with my dad. It was showing on BBC Two where I got most of my film education because we just don't have cinemas here. And like Keith, I grew up on screwball comedies, so I'd seen Fred McMurray in those. And as far as I can remember, I think this was actually the first true noir that I ever saw, even though I'd been watching horror films and, you know, it was all later stuff. I was more attracted to the stuff that was coming out at the time, like the 70s and 80s stuff. Um, so I didn't really have any background in watching noir, didn't really know what to expect. My dad was just really into noir and would often introduce me to a lot of films just to get, could say, come and sit and watch this. And I'd usually think, ugh, but it'd always end up being something amazing. And like Keith as well, really just made such an impact on me because I didn't know what I was watching like it's really erotic, really dark, really, and it just made such an impression on me. And it's then become the noir by which I judge all the others, which is it's a high bar, sets a really high bar. But yeah, it just totally blew my mind. I was a little bit older, so I could understand a lot of the innuendo as well. And growing up in the 80s where everything was getting more graphic... I was just like, wow, this is actually sexier. <laughs> this is actually, you know, almost obscene by what it, what it doesn't show. So, yeah. I came to this one definitely a little bit later than you guys. I think I was in my early 20s when I saw this. I saw it as some, some film class at U of M. And like you, uh, Keith, I grew up watching Fred McMurray as the dad on My Three Sons. So there was a real cognitive dissonance when I encountered Walter Neff, and I'm just like, what the hell is going on? Why is the absent professor talking like this? This is bizarre. And just the the patois, the, the language that they speak in this is so strange to my young ears or was at the time i'm just like what is going like every time he called her baby i could not stop laughing i wasn't necessarily one of those obnoxious people that watches older films and just thinks they're hilarious because they're old for some reason but it just took me by surprise that there there was this darkness in fred mcmurray i had seen him in the key mutiny and i'd Hadn't seen The Apartment yet, but I knew he could go a little dark, but this movie was just so crazy to to not even know what I was experiencing. I think I had seen a couple noirs before this, but 
again, yeah, just Fred McMurray. Um, I was somewhat familiar with Barbara Stanwyck. I knew Edward G. Robinson more as the person that people would try to imitate, like him and James Cagney were like the go-tos for imitators. Mm, ah, ah, is this Miss Primrose? Ah, this is Edward G. Robinson, say. Ah. You're good, kid, but you're only second best as long as I'm around. You're good, kid, real good. But as long as I'm around, you'll always be second best, see? Nah, because I'm black, see? That's right. <laughs> Edward G. Robinson, was he's just fantastic in this movie. He's so good, and everybody is so good. This movie has this crazy pedigree of all the right people working on it, and it coming together and just forming this beautiful, delicious stew of talent, of Billy Wilder directing and co-writing, Raymond Chandler, who we dedicated almost an entire month to last year, being the other co-writer based on a James N. Kane uh, short story novella, and then having John Seitz, or it might be Seitz, uh, as the cinematographer, and Miklos Rosa as the composer. Everything just sings. This movie is so tight. It is fantastic. I think it's one film that I would show young people who say things like, oh, films are, are boring. Or they're not sexy, or you know, they you know things are better now because they're graphic. I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, I think this is a case of something that holds up so well. I mean, I, I definitely agree that anybody for for people who have not been exposed to older movies, or yeah, have that preconception that like older movies are boring. This is like the perfect first one to like show somebody and have them go, oh, wait a minute, never mind, to take it back. And I don't think there's a wasted scene in this film or a wasted shot it just it's so fine-tuned i mean it's like that dialogue which just feels like it's just rat-a-tat type of dialogue it's not necessarily hoxian it's not said that fast it's a little bit slower but it just the dialogue just crackles and it could be just a dialogue picture could just be oh wow i'm amazed at what they're saying but no the direction i think and just the way that everything is put together like I said, I don't think there's a wasted shot in this movie. It's that amazing thing that when movies do right, they're so great, where it's utterly entertaining and fun, and yet it's also art. And it manages to be one of those movies that does both, and you can think about it a lot, and it says a lot about human beings, but it also never feels for a moment like, oh, this is somebody teaching me a lesson or it's something good for me. It's utterly decadent, and like it's like a, it's like it's like a, it's like if you could make a hot fudge sundae that also gave you all your daily nutritional requirements. And I feel like movies like this are that rare thing where you get you get it all, and I think that's something that that movies do as an art really well when when it works. That's the thing about Wilder, though he wasn't necessarily attached to style in in terms of cinematic style. He was really economical. I mean, he learned from Lubitsch, so. So it's all about the story, all about the people, the performances and these wonderful little touches, but everything has to have a reason. He wasn't interested in showing off. And I think that's why, I mean, most of his work is super tight anyway. There's like nothing wasted. He wasn't interested. I think one of the anecdotes he gave is when you you see this the shot from inside the fireplace, <laughs> like looking into a room and it's like, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's like nobody's point of view. And he just really was more focused on people and how they interact. So you can't really take any Billy Wilder f- film and say, 
look at a frame of it and say, oh, yeah, that's Billy Wilder, because he didn't really have a definable style. It was more to do with telling the story. It was all about the story. But then he started as a writer, so... Which is interesting, because I know Andrew Saris did not like Billy Wilder films, and it took him a long time before he kind of came around and apologized to Wilder for really putting him down in his whole auteurist theory. He's just like, oh yeah, he's not an auteur. There is nothing that says that this is a Billy Wilder film. And it's like, well, I think there are some things. Um, some of it is that there's this amazing storytelling. I think that's what he was interested about. I actually, I was just working on something to do with Brian Forbes, actually. And Brian Forbes is similar. He didn't really have a style. It was more about stories. And he said that critics, you know, when they write about film, they look at shot composition and they look at the technical elements. But audiences always remember the performance. And so, and it's the same with Wilder. He was more interested in that character, that story, how people interact. And he was, to- he was totally an author because he followed the same themes over and over and over again in his work, even before he was directing. He was still, you know, to dismiss a director because they don't have a particular style. I think Wilder just wasn't even interested in that. He was a storyteller. One of the greatest um, uh, uh, storytellers of American cinema, I'd say. Well, it's funny. I think the whole idea of auteur has filmmaking has changed, and I think, like many ideas, it, it kind of started in a more uh, maybe a more simple-minded way of like just. It big, I think early on, it tended to be about well, do their films all look the same? Do their films all sound the same? Which is kind of, to me, not even a plus necessarily. I mean, so many of the greatest filmmakers even if they're tremendously stylish. And I think double indemnity style is a huge part of the story, but it was something that Wilder did for that film. It wasn't something that he then carried to every other film. What makes an auteur, and I think it's become more and more the way people frame it, is what you were just saying, which is it's become it's now much more about themes, about, you know, deeper ideas, about about sort of the deep the soul of the movie much more than the 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 style of the movie. And I feel like as people have used that term maybe over the years, it's evolved to be more about like what's under the skin of the artist instead of just what's the, sort of the obvious surface stuff. Well, another overused term is film noir, and we could get really bogged down talking about what was the first film noir and how did it progress and all that. But like I said, this is one of those seminal films. You look at this movie from 2019 eyes, and you're just like, oh yeah, of course this is a film noir. Especially you look at the way that they're using, say, Venetian blinds or the flashback structure, or just the uh, the way that things are composed in order to put people in light and shadow. And there's just so many things. You know, We just talked a few weeks ago about the big combo and how that was just like, this is film noir, like screaming from the screen. And this is pretty much the same thing. You look at those shots of the Dietrichson house, you watch the way that we're framed with the uh, the story around the story of Walter Neff going into the insurance agency and starting to confess, and he is our voiceover narrator. I mean, these are things that we see constantly in film noir, but I, this is 1944, and this is one of the first films that's really putting a lot of these elements together. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a total bar setter. And so many other films that came after it modeled themselves somewhat on this film, I think. I mean, it's perfection, though, isn't it, really? When it comes to another Billy Wilder film, Sunset Boulevard, he takes these same things and just pushes it farther. 
like rather than having this be a voiceover narration from a dying man, we've got Joe Gillis, who's a dead man narrating the story. But it's nice that we have this. And we also have Walter is kind of an unreliable narrator, which I appreciate. There's a lot of times where he is giving us the flourishes of the story, telling us his internal feelings. But there are times where I think he's actually lying to Keys because this is, this voiceover is a memo to Barton Keys, lying to him because he's saying things like, oh, uh, nothing happened. We just sat around in my apartment. And <laughs> there's... Obviously, a po- post-coital kind of look to the next shot after he says that. And I'm like, yeah, her smoking the cigarette, you laying over here on the couch. I think something might have just happened, Walter. I think you might be omitting some things. Obviously, there were, there were, there were cultural reasons at the time you, you couldn't say we had sex. But, but even the implication, I, the, the, to me, one of the things about the film that's really fascinating is you've got sort of... The, the love relationship, which is really the Edward G. Robinson relationship, separated from the lust relationship and the competition between those two, you know, and, and different, you know, that, that there's a lot more in this, in a way, there's a lot more emotional connection with the other male character. And, you know, the way Edward G. Robinson talks about, oh, Margie, now these girls drink from a bottle. You have the feeling that that part of their relationship is that Robinson has approved, disapproves of McMurray's whole sex life. So the idea that he wouldn't, to show that, that he would choose to not say that, you know, to keys in his memo is kind of an interesting one because there seems to be even between the men, a whole thing around women, which is, which is sort of a way, way under the, under the surface kind of thing. But there's clearly, it shows up a bunch of times between them when they're talking. So I wonder if there's almost something in that in the character too. And that that's one, and he didn't want to give him yet another thing to disapprove of. You know, it's like one thing if I killed somebody, but I at least, you know, I'm not going to tell you I had sex with him. One of the most interesting things to me, though, about Wilder's work as a whole is the way that he explored masculinity. He just had a really interesting view on masculinity. It was very flawed. It was almost counter to that classic American hero. He would get these protagonists and he would put them in very desperate situations and see how far he could push them. He would show men as weak and cowardly and manipulative and as liars at various points, you know, more extremes, things like Ace in the Hole, which is like more extreme. You get someone like Kirk Douglas, who's just totally cutthroat. Or the apartment where Jack Lemon's just trying to get ahead. And across the board in his films, there's a huge emphasis on men, masculinity, the, the, their relationships between each other. Even things like The Seven Year Rich, which you think is one man's fantasy about Marilyn Monroe, a lot of the background of that are his male peers and colleagues talking about their extramarital affairs and all the banter. And I just find it fascinating. I find it a really fascinating thing about Wilder's work. Well, and I don't think that you get a more femme fatale than you do in Phyllis, Phyllis Dietrichson. I mean, she is just wonderful when it comes to that. And the other thing, too, talking about the kind of unreliable narrator, we see a lot of things happen with Phyllis that Walter wouldn't necessarily be privy to, like her having a gun under the couch cushion. Or, to me, what's even better is her reaction to Walter killing her husband and just that look on her face that that we don't... That smile is... Her eyes are dancing in that. I love it. It is so good. She just looks so evil. It's it's just amazing. I mean, Barbara Stanwyck, 
was really great in Ball of Fire, wasn't she? With which was scripted by Wilde and Brackett, so you can see why she'd totally be right for Philip, even though the Sugar Puss O'Shea in Ball of Fire has got a bit of a heart, so she's not as mean. You know, you can totally see the prototype there, so why she would be good for that role. But the things that Wilder makes her do it is Phyllis. <laughs> it's just so completely unsympathetic and nasty and rotten, and she's glorious because of it. I do want to talk a little bit more about that dialogue because it really gets me, well, right from the beginning, right as soon as he opens his mouth, and the way that he describes himself in that voiceover that he has to give, you know, his name, his birth date, the date that this is happening on, his marital status, status, all this stuff. And basically he's now putting himself into an actuarial table by giving all of this information. And it's really nice. And then when we move into the story and we have him critiquing Phyllis's house right off the bat, when he's coming to this uh, Spanish place that probably cost $30,000, which made me laugh, probably cost $30,000 and they're still paying for it. And those terrific double entendres of her up at the top of the staircase with the towel on. And of course, I'm thinking of Fletch at that moment. Can I borrow your towel for a sec? My car just hit a water buffalo. Her with the towel on and him saying like, How do you do, Mr. Dietrichson? I'm Walter Nett, Pacific All Risk. Pacific All what? The Pacific All Risk Insurance Company. It's about some renewals on the automobiles. I've been trying to contact your husband for the past two weeks, but he's never in his office. Is there anything I can do? The insurance ran out on the 15th. I'd hate to think of you having a smash fender or something while you're not uh, fully covered. Perhaps I know what you mean, Mr. Neff. I've just been taking a sunbath. No pigeons around, I hope. The, the back and forth between them... Oh my, the back and forth about her anklet, and especially when she talks about how he is trying too hard and that there's a speed limit in this state. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. 8.30 tomorrow evening, then. That's what I suggested. Will you be here, too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. As much as it's great writing, it's also the way it's acted and directed. Because we've all seen that kind of dialogue not work. And even, you know, and I know we'll get to later, but some of the remake stuff, they use some of the same dialogue. And it's easy to see how terribly it can crash and burn (laughs) if it's it's not done right. Those little things like, you know, oh, my name is Walter Neff with two Fs, like the story. And she's like, what story? The Philadelphia story. I mean, just that back and forth, it just moves so quickly. And you're right, the performances just elevate that. So it doesn't sound because, yeah, you put that in the mouth of somebody wrong and it's just going to sound so damn clunky. But they just elevate it to sound almost like poetry. And part of what makes the film so amazing is that, again, they weren't it doesn't feel like the film is doing a style to do a style. It feels like it's kind of part of what it's saying about the people. So whether it's the cinematography or the writing, it's like in every line that they're delivering, 
you never feel like it's about somebody's clever line. It still feels like part of a seduction or it's something a character's actually doing. Like they're talking like that for a reason. And I think a lot of later films just became about the clever dialogue, especially in the noir world. This isn't about the poetry. I mean, it's like when, when the Beck, you know, Shakespeare's at his most enjoyable when you're watching people honestly going after human things using the poetry. And I feel like that's what these characters are doing here. And that's what Wilder, the Wilder, the director, didn't fall into the trap of Wilder, the writer, making it about those lines. Those lines are really smart things to say when you're sort of doing this dance that these people are doing of possible seduction, sizing each other up. So they, they feel grounded. And I think that's why it plays so well. And I think if it didn't feel like they were trying to do something, it would be it would become you know just arch really fast. I know Chandler always, I mean, Chandler was brought in because of his capability for dialogue. But the dialogue, again, across the board in Wilder's, even his writing, his screenplays, is always amazing. And I agree with you, Keith. It's not just for cleverness's sake. There's so much more going on in his dialogue. Even those pre-codes that he did, things like Midnight for Mitchell Lyson or Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, as you did with Brackett, because Wilder was obsessed with American dialogue, because obviously he came here, fled Berlin, and he would listen to how people spoke, and he was really taken with it. So he studied it, but he would always get in a partner to help him write it. And across the board, you get just these fucking amazing lines. There's one in Foreign Affair that I love, where... Marlena Dietrich comes along and she looks at Jean Arthur and says, I see you don't believe in lipstick. It's just like, oh, you know, so it's Chandler's dialogue is fucking amazing. But I think it's something that's integral to Wilder. There's this real so much innuendo, so much in the subtext of what people say is always a purpose. But this very veiled way of speaking as well. As a writer, I just love that. I think it's magnificent. But it is very human as well. And then it gets around the whole code thing. They can be in your face talking about fucking, but not actually saying it. And I just, the whole subversion of that I love as well, because they're doing it up front and centre. And it's it's like the biggest fuck you to, to Breen in the code office, really. <laughs> just so good you mean they're doing it straight down the line when fred mcmurray goes do you want me to run the vacuum cleaner around it's just stuff like that it's just like oh it's so cheeky (laughs) and i know that there was there was talk about how the dialogue in kane's work didn't work coming out of people's mouths that it just sounded oh i don't like i don't like the dialogue and i'm I'm probably going to get shot by pulp novel fans but and it was the first time i'd actually read the text like seen the film so many times but never actually got around to reading the text i haven't got around to reading postman or mildred pierce even though i love the film versions so i'm i'm a bad person really (laughs) but um the dialogue is just so step like i i said to mike before we record i cannot believe he meets this woman and then suddenly decides to kill her husband and there's literally no tension in there. Their dialogue's just so practical. It's just like, do you want insurance? Well, I don't know. It's just like, what? This is, you know, can you imagine if the film had had that in it? What is interesting to me, though, how much of the story makes it into the film. Yeah, the stretch is there. The stretch stretch is great. It's the dialogue that I didn't... Well, obviously, I'm used to double indemnities dialogue, so it came as a bit of a shock. 
that it was pedestrian, I guess. There are some passages that are directly lifted, though, which I've, I thought was nice. Like the whole thing about Keys not trusting the calendar. And it's 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 almost there. It's close, but they definitely gave it a nice polish when they brought it into the screenplay. Walter, I've had 26 years of this, and let me tell you, I'm getting... Yeah, and you loved every minute of it, Keys. You love it, only you worry about it too darn much. You and your little man. You're so darn conscientious, you're driving yourself crazy. You wouldn't even say today's Tuesday unless you looked at the calendar. Then you check to see if it was this year's or last year's calendar. Then you find out who printed the calendar and find out if their calendar checked with the World Almanac's calendar. Now, that's enough from you, Walter. Now, get out of here before I throw my desk at you. When I got back to the office, I found Keys had been looking for me. Keys is head of the claim department and the most tiresome man to do business with in the whole world. You can't even say today is Tuesday without he has to look on the calendar. And then check if it's this year's calendar or last year's calendar. And then find out what company printed the calendar and then find out if their calendar checks with the World Almanac calendar. But there are bits where I was just like, oh, okay, this is this is right from there. Though there's a certain point in the movie that where they just took the Kane story and just threw it out. And we're like, yeah, no, we're going from here. We're going to do a whole different thing. Thank God, because... I know you might get some shit from some Kane purists, but I think Kane himself even thought that they did a better job with his story than he did because the end of the Kane story just goes freaking bonkers. It's crazier than when we talked about the getaway and how nuts uh, the Jim Thompson story gets after a certain point. I mean, because we are talking about Phyllis being in love with death and, painting herself up so her face is white and putting herself in red velvet and them escaping on a boat and her wanting to dive off the boat with Walter so that they can be eaten by sharks. It's like, where are we going with this? And her being this... Can we mention the fact she's a child killer as well? <laughs> oh, yeah, she's an angel of death in this <laughs> in the story. It's wild. <laughs> it's not the... I killed the first Mrs. Dietrichson so that I could get with this oil tycoon who's now his fortune is going down. So now I want to kill him and get the money. It's there's not just one body in her background. There are many bodies and yeah, killing people just to kill them. Basically. It's insane. I'm so glad they cleaned it up and just focused on that one thing. Because, you know, you've got all this background story coming out. You've got a relationship with Lola. And she's saying all this stuff and the ex-boyfriend, all that weird double crossing and cars. And I was just reading it and I was just like, what the hell is going on now? <laughs> Where the hell is this going? We've suddenly shit the bed in Act 3. It was, uh, yeah, I'm probably going to get stoned to death now by Kane fans. I'm not taking any of that back. Well, it's also just that they're look, they're they're it's such different media. I mean, there's in a in a number of sort of the the dark, you know, the Jim Thompson does it all. I mean, there's a, a lot of those writers were drawn to things that were more aggressively surreal and insane, and and they kind of I think work on paper. They don't always, you know, I think that's part of the tra- translation to film that is that they grounded, you know, that ultimately the the film is so much more grounded in human reality, but there is, there, you know, a number of these writers would, you, you do get to the third act and it's like, Oh my God, they literally took acid and started, you know, uh, started going off, which, which I feel like, you know, there's also, now you, I'd be interested to see some noir that films that play, use some of that. 
But I thought that for this, the, diff- the whole difference of what made it work for an audience for you know, 70, 80 years now is, is that it all becomes humanized. Yeah, it's much better. I did actually find a news report from 44, actually, August, where uh, James King came out in the press and just said how well director had done. He said he, he really loved the version and he was more annoyed at the at the Hayes office because he'd been in a bidding there'd been a bidding war eight years previously and he was being offered twenty five grand and then all of a sudden the deals were off because the Hayes Code office had like forbidden the filming of the book on the grounds that it constituted a blueprint for murder. Um going by what happens in the book. <laughs> Wilders, maybe. Uh, so when Paramount finally bought it, he only got 15 grand and he was really pissed about this. But he loved what Wilder did with it. There was a really interesting comment at the end of the article that he said he was involved with Metro uh, doing this a screenplay for a film for Billy Wilder again called Frankie from Frisco, which I could only find one reference to in a book somewhere that it seems like there was only a treatment ever written it was set in the 1800s and Arthur Hornblower Jr basically just kicked it out so I don't know it's like one of those weird projects like Billy Wilder doing period as well interesting I want to know more about it March 22nd, 1946, Metro shelves Frankie from Frisco because the subject matter was too tough to lick, Hedda Hopper says. Based on James M. Kane's story with the screenplay by Robert D. Andrews, Frankie from Frisco was set in 1865 and dealt with building railroads. It was to star Lana Turner, the Times said. Then at this point, Kane was selling his, he was selling his rights to his, for the Postman Always Rings twice. Mildred Pierce, which is just... I love Mildred Pierce, another incredible film adaptation. Haven't read the book. <laughs> Someone said to me once, oh, you should read the book, but it's quite different. So having read this one, <laughs> I have to think, yeah, how different. You talked about how there are moments that ground this in reality, and those are some of the most interesting bits for me are things like... Walter Neff going bowling and going to the drive-in or drive-through or um, when they're at the market and we've got the, the woman that interrupts them talking and she's uh, wants something that's on a higher shelf. It's like those moments, especially the, the woman in the grocery store, they add this nice tension and this nice sense of reality that we wouldn't necessarily get if it was always just Walter and Phyllis, Walter and Phyllis, occasionally Walter and, and Keys, but we've got these other characters and these other moments that really kind of put us into a real Los Angeles. And that's the other thing I like about this too, is just how much they use California and Los Angeles and that they use real street names and talk about how they're going to the corner of this and that. So much was shot on location, which was quite rare. Like Wilder hated shooting on location as well, just because you couldn't control. And they had like, they had to have the police out helping them, you know, controlling all the stand uh, people standing by watching and causing a bit of a spectacle. So it shows so many of these locations from Hollywood. It's it's great. It's like Sunset Boulevard as well. You just get to see these places that no longer exist, like a little snapshot in history. 
which I'm wondering if some of that might have come from like shortages during the war. I mean, I don't know if this holds any water. Like, ah, no, I have, I have another press clipping actually. <laughs> so basically, the the War Production Board had put a five thousand dollar limit on new materials for sets. Basically, they'd gone out and they just had to find all the locations because they couldn't afford to to build them. Uh, which caused uh, apparently they at one point the scene in the garage because that was on location the store was on location it was an actual real store just up the road from Paramount they had the drive-in restaurant was uh, a location they had Beerbank railway station like they used so much in the house as well but they had the bit in the garage the comic Fred Allen had apparently sauntered through and got into his car. They shot the scene where he comes in and leaves his car with a valet. Didn't notice him till the rushes. <laughs> it's just in the background. So, And it says in this thing, Billy Wilder said, at one point we planned the camera to take in the whole garage. Nobody noticed Fred Allen had come out of a door and walked into his automobile. And later when we saw the rushes at the studio, Fred McMurray let out a yip and had the projectionist run that part of the film over again. And sure enough, there was Alan, large as life, patiently waiting for the scene to end so so that the sound of his starter wouldn't be recorded. <laughs> Which I think is great. Well, and of course, that uh, amazing shot of the Hollywood Bowl. I mean, that definitely was shot on location right that always strikes me i'm just like oh wow they're really pushing it here but okay i'll let it pass you know it's a really cool and i think that was where i think i assume it was a set was the was the office itself um and there's a really amazing transition that nobody ever seems to notice but it, when when fred McMurray comes in from the outside and he comes in from this real world um and, and one of the things i think works so well in the film you know and whether it was intentional or just the luck of the way things were that yeah they were forced into doing a lot of location stuff around the edges because of the war situation but to me the the tension between this kind of the set world, which feels not that, which doesn't feel real in the same way, and and the the dreamlike quality of some of the scenes with just the main characters, and then the, then there's the outside world out there that's kind of separate from the world that they're existing in their own kind of weird, strange little psychotic twosome, um, and even threesome with 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 keys. I just feel like that strain works really well for the film. But when they when February comes in from the outside. He goes in the elevator, and I believe if you look at that, there's a false wall outside the elevator. The elevator door closes, and it's an elevator set, and then it opens, and it reveals that incredible office set. And the camera comes out and enters, and it's like he's now gone from the real world into, you know, what could arguably be said to be sort of inside his head a little bit. And it's I, I, I'm pretty sure watching it again that it's just all an, a, a trick of the camera. I mean, it's basically a false wall was put outside the elevator set. The elevator door closes. It opens, and the, the 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 much larger set they built was back behind it. From what I've read, that interior of the insurance office was based on some of the offices at Paramount. So it would have been like all the secretaries and stuff working with all those desks. Because I love that shot later on when you have all of the people there, and it just seems like this total hive of activity. I it's almost like a little blueprint for what he did with the apartment. Then, because I love the sets in the apartment. Just the whole office thing where you see those desks going on for miles. There's a shot in Double Indemnity that's similar, just not as big and not as artificial. 
But, you know, all that little hubbub of women on their typewriters and stuff. I like that you brought up this whole idea of how quickly Neff, or in the book Huff, how quickly he turns and agrees to go ahead and do this uh, plot with uh, Phyllis uh, Nerdlinger. I prefer Dietrich on his site. <laughs> Which I always wonder if there's a nod to Marlena Dietrich. It with has that name. to be because Marlene is one of the one of the biggest femme fatales, isn't she? She was good friends with Wilder, and obviously he'd go on to work with her in Foreign Affair, and then witness the prosecution. But they knew each other from Berlin, and she is the archetype, really, of the one of the one of the best femme fatales ever in cinema. Those roles that she did for von Sternberg way before the noir must have had a bearing on this. Although Marlene always looked really classy, whereas Phyllis looks awful. Yeah, Phyllis is definitely not classy. I mean, we can talk about the wig, but the whole thing of, like, the anklet and the perfume that she got in Ensenada, uh, which is supposed to be a really cheapy tourist town, the way that she'll drink bourbon with Walter, uh, not from the bottle, but she will drink bourbon with him, and that she seems like you know, I mean, she comes from a lower class uh, background, but she's definitely tried to elevate herself as this wife of this uh, failing oil baron. You were saying the whole idea of like him immediately turning. I like that there isn't necessarily that quickness in this movie that we have several meetings. We've got the first meeting of these two, him coming back, her kind of introducing this idea, her going over to his apartment and then I think that's where they kind of, quote-unquote, seal the deal. And I also like, too, talking about this idea of uh, of us leaving the story to go back to him at the office and then coming back to where the story is and omitting that possible sex scene. I love the way that the camera will push in and pull out to kind of introduce where these scenes are. And especially that we just seem to get closer and closer on Neff as he's telling the story and the way that Fred McMurray looks in that voiceover section where he just is so sweaty and that the blood stain on his uh, jacket is getting bigger every single time we come back. It's just those nice little touches of just that he's not necessarily afraid to look really bad because Walter's in a really bad position here. How sweaty and beat up McMurray looks is, is really kind of, uh, again, very much ahead of its time. I mean, he, he's, he looks very real in his distress and, the underplaying, which you know, the, you know, the, the the fact that he's in pain, but it's he's he's pushing his way through it, and the way the blood stain just slowly grows, and you know, all that stuff is really cool, and it's not something you saw a lot in movies. You know, they, that that the star would be, you know, first of all, the star looks terrible, and then he's also announcing literally at the very beginning of the film, "I'm the killer," which is one of the great sort of anticlimactic climactic moments, you know. Uh, I think the structure that most people would have been used to in terms of an audience is like, this is going to be a story about, you know, who did what. And here the film immediately, like two minutes in, he goes, you know, I'll let you in on a big secret. I'm the killer. And um, that's a really interesting thing to do because it takes the rug out. I mean, again, now we've got that. Now that's a, a, a kind of structure that's not uncommon. But I think at the time for a mainstream audience, it probably was pretty, you know, it was probably no less surprising when, than when Hitchcock kills off Janice Lee at the beginning of Psycho. I mean, it's got to be very odd that, Here's our main character, Hero, and he's sitting here going, I'm a killer. Uh, and now you're going to watch the whole story through that lens. Especially someone like Fred McMurray as well. I always wondered, 
I mean, I know they wanted George Raft, which I can't really see. Uh, George Raft, bless him. But And Fred McMurray finally got the role. It seems like a weird sort of irony when you think about Billy Wilder and Mitchell Lyson. Because Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett often did scripts, or they did a, a few scripts for Mitchell Lyson, but it was Lyson's cutting of Wilder's dialogue from Hold Back the Dawn some key dialogue that he really wanted in in there that made Wilder say, fuck this, I'm going to go and direct my own films. And Murray was one of Lyson's stars. You know, he was in these wonderful... I mean, I love those comedies with people like Carol Lambard, for example, like Hands Across the Table and Swing High, Swing Low. This very easygoing, very cheeky sort of guy... And then McMurray, who is Lyson's star, ends up being completely reinvented by Wilder. So it seems like a strange cosmic irony there. But then he does the same thing with Ray Milland in A Lost Weekend because Ray Milland was also one of Mitchell Lyson's players, or Paramount player, but Mitchell Lyson always claimed, you know, Ray Milland's rising star as his because Ray Milland again was appearing in these very very lovely kind of comedies and prior to this I my mind has gone blank I, well remember the night that was it yeah prior to this uh Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray had been in this very lovely sort of Christmas comedy remember the night where Barbara Stanwyck is a shoplifter and Fred McMurray is the prosecutor and it's just before Christmas and he gets her a fine. He gets her a fine, but he feels sorry for her, so he takes her to his parents. And so that's what they were before but like before they turn up in double indemnity and then, then here they are. Fred McMurray sweating and bleeding everywhere. Barbara Stanwyck in a wig in a ankle brace bracelet and it just breaks all the rules. And I would have loved to have known you know being in the audience at the time to just see how people reacted to that and ultimately i think it's part of why the film is so great i mean i think if you'd cast a george raft and or even if you'd cast a, a, an actor maybe who's a better actor but was always the tough guy always the guy on the edge i, I just don't know that you would have yeah. related no. to the character the same way part of what makes the film so fascinating is the edge that mcmurray walks you know under wilder's direction and where he's awful, but he's also a regular guy. You can you can empathize and identify with him in spite of yourself. And I think if they cast somebody who's like, you know, I'm tougher than you. I, I was a yeah. hard-boiled guy before this. I, I just don't know that you would have had the same emotional reaction to the movie. It would have just been a story of a bad man instead of a story of a bad man that you, uh, you see yourself in much more than you'd like to. Because you have to like, or part of you has to like Walter Neff for it to work. It just wouldn't work, you know, if it was some kind of smugger, more actor with more bravado, like he said, like a hard man. I don't think it would have had that vulnerable edge. I think Wilder's men were often very vulnerable, which is another thing that went against the grain for the Hollywood formula. Very vulnerable, very weak, and you need to believe that Neff is, is weak. You know, he thinks he's in charge of everything, but he's not. The minute he meets Barbara Stanwyck, he's fucked. <laughs> and, and we know that 
because he, but he's weak and he's likable and he's not really a bad person. He's just something about him that just gets carried away. But we have to believe that. Otherwise, it just it wouldn't have the resonance. That last scene wouldn't have the potency that it has. Well, we have to think that he's weak when we see him. I mean, we don't necessarily see him, him, but the figure at the very beginning in the opening credits who's on the crutches. Ostensibly, that's McMurray, even though it's probably not. It's probably somebody else, but someone who is injured and is without the use of one of their legs. And then the other, the next time we see McMurray, he's shot. And so he is, you're right, he's completely portrayed as being weak right off the bat. And then we finally get him, you know, fully intact after that once he begins the story. But to your point, too, we have to like him and we really have to dislike some of the other people in the story, like Mr. Dietrichson. And he is just a jerk right off the bat. And then there's always that the line that strikes me funny when, uh, and I guess that was a pun, when Phyllis says that he will get drunk, Dietrichson will get drunk and slap her around. And I always wonder if he actually does or if that's just her trying to pull those strings on Walter and her trying to be the the damsel in distress because when you meet him it's like the daughter's scared of him for a start she lies to him and you see Dietrichson or Phyllis saying oh he slaps me around you think oh she's just playing him she's doing that typical thing that we've seen so many times after this where the woman will say, oh, you know, this guy is a bully. And... But then you see the husband and you think maybe she is telling the truth because he's, he's horrible. He's not a nice person. You don't feel sorry for him being killed whatsoever because all his lines are shouted for a start. He just, when he goes on about her for buying too many hats. I suppose you realise, Mr. Diedrichsen, that not being an employee, you are not covered by the State Compensation Insurance Act. The only way you can protect yourself is by having a personal policy of your own. Yeah, I know all about that. The next thing you'll tell me, I need earthquake insurance and lightning insurance and hail insurance. If we bought all the insurance they could think of, we'd stay broke paying for it, wouldn't we, honey? What keeps us broke is you going out and buying five hats at a crack. Who needs a hat in California? You know, he humiliates his wife. He treats his daughter like property. So you don't, you know, when he goes, you just think, tough. (laughs) You don't really feel for him. Though, to be fair, she's out seeing that Nino Zacchetti guy who eventually ends up starting to bang her and her mother, which is just crazy. Well, Nino seems like the dad as well, doesn't he? He seems like a... And I don't... Because he's not like this in the book. When they when Neff drops her off and meets Nino, he's shouting like the dad and barking these... Qu- and you think she's going from the frying pan to the fire here. This is Mr. Neff, Nino. Hello, Nino. The name is Zacchetti. Nino, please. Mr. Neff gave me a ride from the house. I told him all about us. Why does he have to get told about us? We don't have to worry about Mr. Neff, Nino. I'm not doing any worrying. Just don't you broadcast so much. What's the matter with you, Nino? Well, he's a friend. I don't have any friends. If I did, I'd like to pick them myself. Come on. Look, Sonny, she needed a ride, so I brought her along. Is that anything to get tough about? All right, Lola, make up your mind. Are you coming or aren't you? Of course I'm coming. And it, it must have been intentional because he's not like that in the book at all. But then the husband is is nicer in the book as well. I can't buy that Nino Zacchetti of the movie is a medical student. <laughs> he doesn't 
anything. Nino Zacchetti, I mean, I could not think of a more ethnic name if I tried. And it seems like the guy who sets his own truck on fire, who's got the thicker accent, it seems like he could play Nino Zacchetti almost better because Nino is just, he's a tough guy. He he seems like he could have come out of George Raff's you know, tr- trailer or something. It just feels like he is that tough guy. And it's like, you're a medical student. You, you've you captured Lola's heart when Neff kind of saves him at the end of the film and sends him back with Lola. I'm just like, well, that's, that's kind of nice what you're doing, Walter. But I would really rather that Lola didn't have Nino Zacchetti in her life. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely assume the medical student thing was a story he told her. I just assume that it was like, you know, that 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 that, that he's just playing her, you know, that the way that uh, the way that Barbara Zamek's playing Neff is, you know, I, I assume like the guy lost his money. He's like, oh yeah, I was a medical student. You know, I think one of the things you say to impress a young girl, and he's just, you know, he and that and that became the excuse for, you know, well, I lost all my money, but I was a medical student. And, yeah, I, I just, I, there's a whole story there. That I think you could just is probably its own little echo of the main story. And I like these things. These speaking of echoes, these echoes of like Lola hiding in the car, which is what Neff will do later on when he commits the murder, or the way that the murder is committed of him hiding in the back of the car and coming up and you know strangling her husband, which is somewhat similar to. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't think I've actually sat through this entire movie. I've just seen a couple stills and previews. It's very similar to Postman Rings twice, if memory serves. Are we allowed to say that? Because it's just in case anyone hasn't seen it. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing I remember from like uh, my first film book. It's the same thing. It's the same fucking thing. It's like an insurance policy and a lever, and it's very similar story. Can we talk about Porter Hall for a few minutes, Mister Jackson from Medford, Medford, Oregon? Oh my God, I love this character. The guy who almost undoes everything for them. He's great. Oh, we talked about Porter Hall a long time ago on the show because there's a character in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls who's named Porter Hall. And so when I see the real Porter Hall, I always have to laugh a little bit. But my goodness, him just being this overly effusive guy on the train and talking about going up to Medford. And then when he shows back up again later at Keyes' office and just the way that he's trying to put Walter into context. I love that. That is so wonderful. And just I'm on the edge of my seat with that character. He's such a colorful little character as well, isn't he? He's like, as soon as he turns up on the train, like a bit of a, a busybody and he's nosy and he wants to, you, everyone's met someone like that when you're out traveling and there's, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, there's someone who's like, oh, where are you going? And you just, as soon as you see him there, you just think, oh God, but he's, he's great. He's absolutely brilliant. Even though he's probably only on screen for about a whole minute. Well, and even the way that he's trying to scam the insurance company with that uh, expense account and that he wants to stop at that, when was it, an obstetrician or an osteoporosis doctor or whatever? It's just like, okay, this is interesting. But, I mean, there are so many people in this movie that are just inherently not good or that have bad qualities. You know, the the boss at the insurance agency, I love that scene too, when he's trying to figure out what happened with this Dietrichson case and that Keyes puts him in his place. And especially when Keyes has no time for this guy because he was 
born and raised in the insurance business, but he was born and raised in the front office. He's basically the previous owner's father. So he's inherited this company, and Keyes just has no time for this guy whatsoever. That speech he gives about the probability, and apparently just did that in one take, is incredible. He just spits out this whole bunch of how people die by suicide. (laughs) And it's just like, without even taking a breath, and totally unravels the guy's thesis, even though the guy's actually right. I think I know. In fact, I know I know what happened to Dietrichson. You know, you know what? I know it was not an accident. What do you say to that? Well, you've got the ball. Let's see you run with it. There's a widespread feeling that just because a man has a large office, he must be an idiot. Mr. Norton, first thing that struck me was that suicide angle. Only I dumped it into the waste paper basket just three seconds later. You know, you uh, ought to take a look at these statistics on suicide sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Mr. Keyes, I was raised in the insurance business. Yeah, in the front office. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, we've got ten volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poisons, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton... Of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? Fifteen miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? No, no soap, Mr. Norton. We're sunk and we'll have to pay through the nose, and you know it. I like how the guy's such a dick to Keys because he's not wearing a suit coat. You know, oh, is it a particularly warm day today, Mr. Keys? <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Talking of people annoying each other, though, we have to talk about Chandler and Wilder because those two together, wasn't there some gripe that uh, Billy Wilder was wearing his hat in the office and Raymond Chandler couldn't cope with it? I know he couldn't handle him opening the window or walking around or just basically doing anything. And those two locked in a room to have been a fly on the wall there Through all that conflict, though, they somehow come up with this incredible script. Yeah, apparently uh, Chandler liked to smoke, but yeah, always kept the windows closed. And Wilder, yeah, he was a pacer, which drove Chandler nuts. And he had a... And he'd open the windows. Yeah, and he had a cane, and he would like... He would wave the cane underneath Chandler's nose or something. And yeah, there was a huge, like, inner office memos going back and forth. (laughs) But I guess out of great conflict comes some brilliant work. And then, of course, Wilder went on and did Lost Weekend, which was his ode to Raymond Chandler about an alcoholic, failed alcoholic writer having a breakdown. <laughs> it's, uh, which is a fabulous film, but yeah, inspired by Chandler, who was a bit of an alky. Yeah, I heard different things about whether it was Wilder who would go to the bathroom and come back and... Chandler had obviously been having a nip or that it was vice versa that Chandler would go to the bathroom and hit his flask and then come back and be in a better mood. But yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of sweet revenge that, uh, Wilder got on him (laughs) by crafting that film. (laughs) I mean, we could go through every single little thing in here, but it, it just, 
everything, like I said, this is like, it's like clockwork. And actually, speaking of clockwork, and this wasn't a bad uh, segue, there are even moments that remind me of one of my other favorite film noirs, which is The Big Clock and this whole idea of Walter being right there when Keyes finally comes around to that position that his boss had. And it's just like, there's another man. There's another man here. We're going to find him, Walter. And that he's right there next to him. And also mm. talking about that thing with uh, Porter Hall, I like the way that Wilder flips the framing of it so that it's Neff in the background and Porter Hall in the foreground versus the train where it was vice versa. And it's just such a nice echo there of the, the two men and the how, you know, I like how Neff is keeping his back to Hall and this time he's staying behind his back. He doesn't want to be seen again, but doing it in a different way. Just such nice little touches. I mean, again, Wilder, despite what some people say, was a great director and he knew what the hell he was doing. Briefly, one of the one of the things that I love about the film and I think that holds up so well, and the nef- and the scenes with the uh, with the Porter Hall character are so such great examples of it, is is Wilder's knowledge of how far to push something and not to go past it. I feel like the modern version of the scene on the back of the train would have dragged on and on and on, and it kept would have been. Oh, now there's another way he's going to screw up the plot. There's another way he's going to screw up the plot, and and throughout this film. You know whether it's whether it's the dialogue about the, about the the speeding ticket, whether it's both of the scenes with Porter Hall, they go on just the right amount of time to create maximum suspense, and with, before it crosses into feeling like you're being manipulated by the film. And I feel like that's that's an art that's been lost since then. I mean, you look at you know any of these things where the car won't start, whatever. It just seems like the timing is is brilliant in this film, and it and it would be so easy to go a beat longer. And kind of go, oh, we got it already. And and it's sort of, I, I feel like I wish filmmakers would study it now because I, I think this is the perfect lesson in how long you can play something out. The scene with Porter Hall when they're on the train kind of reminds me of a scene from a movie that I know you're familiar with, Keith, which is The Killing. It kind of reminds me of when the Timothy Carey character is at the racetrack and the, the black guy is being so nice to him to the point where he finally has to be really nasty to get him to leave him alone. I love that scene. It's so mean as well because he has to be really starts off really nice and then it's kind of like this guy's like, hey, and then he's just like, will this guy not go already? And he's, uh, yeah, it's definitely. It's interesting too that there are, well, I mean, there are very, very few characters, ethnic characters in this film. I mean, there's the, I guess he's Greek, the guy who tries to burn up his own truck, and that when he's leaving the office, he actually thanks Keys, which I found to be fantastic. That he's basically like, thank you, Keys, for putting me back on the na- the the straight and narrow. He talks about like um, a woman that comes in to clean his house, Neff has a woman that comes in to clean his house once a week, which I don't know if that's just a joke or not, but there's the uh, African American guy who's working in the garage that we were talking about earlier and that he uses that guy as an alibi. And then he also uses the guy who shares his office, whose last name is Schwartz, which I, I found very interesting too, that here's this, uh, you know, this Jewish guy, or at least I would assume by the name that this guy is Jewish. So he's using these people of other, uh, ethnicities as his alibis, which I, I found kind of interesting. The guy that plays Schwartz, I, uh, as soon as I saw him, I was just like, oh my God, I've seen this guy so many times before. I think he's on screen for like 10 seconds, but, um, I mostly know him for playing um, one of the characters in The Thing, the original The Thing, because he's got a much bigger role in that one. Douglas Spencer is the guy's name. 
That's what I love about the the studio era, though. You had all these little contract players, little bit part players, and you tend to see these faces show up. You might not necessarily know who the person is, and then you look them up and they're like, man in elevator, (laughs) you know. But they become so much part of the fabric of that period of cinema that they feel like old friends when they pop up. Nobody knows anything about them or little things. I know there's some crazy people who go out and research people's backgrounds to help, but there's always that one person, did you know? But, yeah, they they fascinate me because they were just on a salary and they just get called out. Well, you can be the office assistant or next week you're going to be the guy at the diner. (laughs) And it was just a job to them. They weren't really stars, but they held together that whole fabric of of the studios you know i didn't realize just how right that boss is watching the movie i'm like okay yeah he's right and which is funny that keys is still arguing that he's wrong but then later when we hear keys on the dictaphone and him actually saying i don't agree with you we should not be tailing walter neff he's a stand-up guy and i've been with him all these years and it's just like oh you know again had you been doing that had you seen him out with lola all of those times you might have started to suspect something but nope keys is still very much on his side and i know it's cheesy as hell but it just works so well for me is the whole thing with the cigarette and and the lighter and just how Every time Keyes goes to light his cigar, that he's always searching his pockets and can never find it. And that Fred McMurray, Walter Neff, just lights up a, a, a match off of his thumb and has it right there for Keyes. And the way that that is echoed at the very end of the film is just so nice. And I used to, because they used to do that in films all the time. They would have matches and they would like, you know, like with Klaus Kinski's face and for a few dollars more, like take the match and scratch it across his face and light it up. I didn't realize that they changed the way that matches were made over, um, you know, like the last, I don't know, 40 years or so that they have safety matches that don't light as easily because man, I used to try to do that all the time when I was a kid, just like, Oh, let's light this match by scratching across brick or this or that. And never worked for me. God damn it. The whole betrayal of keys though, is the thing that really gives it that punch at the end rather than the betrayal of Dietrichson, because that always seems inevitable from the minute we see her. We know that she's not quite right. But with Keyes, when he realises, you know, he's been played, that that is the, the heartbreaker. Well, so it, I do think it's the only real love relationship in the movie. I mean, you know, whatever's going on with Stanwick's character, the the real love, I mean, and it's explicit. I mean, the fact is that, you know, in a, for a movie in the time, you have these two guys, that, you know, I mean, that he says, I love you too. And yes, he's being sarcastic, but he even says in the voiceover, but I really meant it. That that is the betrayal. That is the, the that is the heart of the film, and that's what's so interesting is that you've kind of got the the heart and the brain ripped apart. But really, the 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 only true love in the movie is between those two guys. And I know some critics have taken that and tried to play it into this whole like homoerotic relationship and stuff, and you can do that. But it's just like for me, there can be platonic love between two male characters, though the one is definitely absolutely. Oh, and, it, and, it, and to me, it almost feels father and it son. It does. I mean, to me, it yeah. Feels- you know, it's 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 that kind of love, but it is but it is true love. It is true. You really know that that Keys is heartbroken into this film in a way that 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 the Stanway character could never be. I mean, it's just not part of who she is. 
No, and I think that's the, that's the thing that... Another thing that goes against the grain of Hollywood is, you know, you're not supposed to show men in love, not as friends, not that way. You know, which is why I think people try to read it as something else. But like I said with Wilder, masculinity is a very complex thing, as it should be. And he showed all these different areas... You know, in the way that men are forced into certain situations or they become desperate and it did a lot on the male ego. I mean, look at Sunset Boulevard. That's all about male ego and weakness and vulnerability. So, you know, I I don't think... Because Billy Wilder's films were always... When he used sex, it was more about power and about other things, about opening up these male identities than just being sex his films were never what's the word for i guess they were never really sexy i think you know there's loads of sex in a lot of his films in the context in the subtext of the things people say but there's always this pushing and shoving and it's all about power and games people play and manipulation but he wasn't somebody who particularly cared that much about sex just as a sensational aspect even in something like kiss me stupid which drove the censors absolutely mad audiences thought it was disgusting because it's about wife swapping and prostitution wasn't really about that it was about this failed songwriter and his own ego so i think it's always a lot more complex in world and it's easy to say oh they loved each other well, they did, but it wasn't necessarily a gay thing. Yeah, the scene where he offers Walter the new position and that it's so hard for him to n- not insult Walter. Like, they've got that banter in the way that when w- Walter turns him down, and he's like, oh, you're not smarter. You're just taller. And it's like, oh, it's so nice. And yeah, you're right. It is much more of a filial thing and that his son his adopted son betrays him it is just it is heartbreaking well he's been his mentor hasn't he obviously he's been in the business so long keys and neff is like the young talent who's been there for 11 years or whatever and he's learned everything he knows from this older man it's definitely more like a father and son because i like well neff hasn't really got any family that you see so there are there's a lot of really interesting subtext in there but it's a different kind of love. I think you need that because he needs to be anchored to something. There needs to be a loss at the end. Um, you know, if you just lost Dietrichson, she's not really anything to lose, is she? There has to be something else, that, that punch to the gut. Well, and I think the fact that Keyes sees all that he does in Walter Neff helps us as an audience also again go, yeah, there's a, there's a good man somewhere in there. You yeah. Know? Keys is someone that we trust, and he is like a father figure to, to Neff, but he's also like a father figure for the audience, and he's somebody whose little man is always right, and he's always liked Walter. So obviously on some level, he's I think he's he like helps us go like, yeah, you know, Walter, Walter's not inherently completely bad. And I think Keys does a, a really is an important counterweight for that emotional reason too. Well, yeah, there is that push and pull between Dietrichson and Keys, and there's that incredible shot of Phyllis hiding behind the door when Keyes is leaving. I love, talk about amazing framing. I love that. That is so nice. And it is almost like devil and angel on his shoulders at that point. I 
have a hard time believing that there was 18 more minutes of footage to this film, this whole ending that has been talked about forever. I'm wondering if it was 18 minutes as like an assembly cut or something. I can't imagine this movie going on for 18 more minutes, like maybe two, but not 18. Come on. I think one thing with Wilder is, I mean, he never really did short films. If you look at the running time of his, even when you didn't generally get longer running times, I mean, even Double Indemnity is, what, an hour and three quarters, which is long for a 40s film. But he never, ever overstayed his welcome. So even something like Irma La Douce, which is like two and a half hours, there's not a scene that overstays its welcome. And I just, I can't believe, 18 minutes of what? He wouldn't have unnecessarily shown a huge court case. And what, like, what would they, what would they have done? I, well, the, I, only, yeah. the only thing that ever seems to keep showing up is the same one or two stills from 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 the uh, from the gas chamber. I mean, I don't think yeah. I've seen any other any other images of of a courthouse or anything else, which which makes me think there was probably maybe the one scene, and and whatever length it was, you know, unless it was an eighteen minute scene, uh, I I would I tend to agree that. We'd probably have seen evidence of other, other, other locations, other things that would have happened. Yeah, no, I do, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? But I'm glad they ended it where they did. And it, I can almost feel where they probably went back and did the reshoot just to kind of wind things up. Like during that last little bit after he leaves the office, it just feels like, and I'm not going to say tacked on, it just feels like that's probably where the cut would have been. But the way that they end this is as perfect of an ending as you can possibly get. Yeah, to- I, d- I don't think I wanted to see him go to the chamber. And, and it sort of would have been, again, besides, I mean, the emotional climax, I mean, ultimately, the heartbreak of the film is that moment. And that's any, yeah, anything, you really, there's nothing you could put on there that wouldn't have felt like you were just winding, you know, winding down. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back right after these brief messages. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the cinephile in your life? What if you could give them a whole year of the best documentary and art house films from around the world? Our friends at Ovid.tv are making that easier than ever with the special holiday offer. From now until midnight on Monday, December 2nd, 2019, Ovid.tv is offering 25% off their annual subscriptions. This means you get a whole year of Ovid the best streaming service for critically acclaimed independent films for just $52.50 instead of $69.99. Simply head over to www.ovid.tv and use the code THANKS2019 at checkout. Act now. You don't want to miss this. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers both Android and iOS. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first run 
seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. I suppose you realize, Mr. Dietrichson, that since you're not an employee, you're not covered by the normal workman's compensation. The only way you can really be protected is to have a personal policy of your own. If we bought all the insurance that he carries in that little book, we'd stay broke paying for it, wouldn't we, sweetheart? What keeps us so broke is you going out and buying five pairs of shoes at a crack. <laughs> you got a policy covering that, Pally? Dollar for dollar, Mr. Dietrichson. Accident insurance is the cheapest coverage you can buy. Well, let's just settle that automobile insurance tonight. I had a tough day. All right, we're back and talking about double indemnity. And, uh, you know, I sometimes say that any good movie deserves a good remake. And double indemnity has had a few, including a pretty... Surprisingly, a pretty direct remake from 1973, which has Richard Crenna in it as Walter Neff. This one was interesting to watch. What was the point in the 1970s? Like, what was the point in it? I don't know. I mean, were people it's clamoring? It's a lot shorter, but all, <laughs> almost, almost scene to scene, but missing sort of a lot of other scenes and just... Well, it just felt like somebody oh. needed to fill two hours of television. And, you know, that's always a bad reason to make anything. Look, I think a lot of things have gotten made over the years for film and TV that were because, you know, somebody wanted to create product. And I think, you know, this that remake is a perfect example of, you know, someone thought, oh, this is a product we can fill somewhere instead of a story that we're desperate to tell, which to me is all the difference. The 73 remake is, I mean, I want to use it as a teacher because it's sort of to me such a a – it proves the value of what actors and directors do in a very graphic way because, you know, I was touching on this before. There, there are a number of scenes that are literal line-for-line transliterations of, of the original film. And yet without any of the insight, passion, artistry in the way it's photographed, artistry in the way it's acted. Or, and the same – because the script of, of this film is always the thing that's really talked about more than anything else. And, and, and I agree the script is, is powerful, but, but you get to see what happens when the same exact material – is put in hands that aren't inspired the way that, that Wilder was inspired by the people around him are. And it's fascinating to see how the same dialogue that sounds so brilliant in the original just kind of goes off a cliff in, in the 73 version. Was Dead Behind the Eyes that film? I know that's a cruel thing to say, but it's just totally dead. It has none of the tension, none of the eroticity. Like, just that even though they're saying the same things, keeps right, it's... It's just there's nothing there. The supposed dialogue is cut in half, and it doesn't make any sense the way that they just end it abruptly with, like, suppose I write you a ticket, and then it's done. You know, it's like, well, what about the whole thing about 
busting out crying and crying on my husband's shoulder. I mean, it just adds to it and makes it so great. But then there's this just strange cut and we go off to the next thing. And I believe in this state there's a, a 65 mile an hour speed limit. Oh, really? Well, how fast was I going, officer? I'd say about 90. <sighs> Thank you very much, Mrs. Dietrichson. Tomorrow evening at 830. Then. Mm-hmm. The one thing I really liked about this movie is I'm a huge fan of 12 Angry Men, and this was like a 12 Angry Men reunion, because you got Lee J. Cobb, you got Robert Webbert, and you got John Fielder as Mr. Jackson from Medford, Medford, Oregon, and that's about it. You know, it's just like, oh, okay, here are these guys that I like a lot from uh, 12 Angry Men. Unfortunately, it didn't have the tension of 12 Angry Men, though, did it? It just didn't seem to have any tension at all, which was kind of sad. And I guess there's a little irony that Richard Crenna would go on to be in Body Heat, because I know some people will say, oh, Body Heat's a remake, but there's enough differences. I mean, Larry Kasdan doesn't credit the original stuff in his screenplay, but my God, there are a lot of similarities between Body Heat and Double Indemnity. You've got John Hurt as a scuzzy lawyer, and he is seducing slash being seduced by Catherine, uh, Kathleen Turner. And I remember this movie, I can't say vividly from when I was younger, but I remember this was Forbidden Fruit. I could not watch Body Heat. And so when I finally went and watched it just a few years ago, I was just like, oh, What's all the big deal about? <laughs> like, there's some sexy stuff in here. And, you know, Kathleen Turner is was definitely one of my childhood crushes after seeing her in uh, Crimes of Passion. I really like Body Heat. I really like it. In fact, I probably saw it before I saw Double Indemnity, but didn't really make the connection at the time there's just i love a good sleazy 80s or 90s thriller they're so trashy but i just love them they're like uh but yeah i love kathleen turner i just think it's so fucking sleazy and everyone's got the sweat running up them and it's got that the john barry score is like it's on some sort of drugs because every scene it's like emphasizing the point with <laughs> And it's so out there that I really enjoy it. Uh, whether it's a, a fitting tribute for Billy Wilder, I I don't know. But yeah, I do really enjoy it. But it's, it's so trashy. It's like a soap opera version. I guess for me, it sort of feels like the difference is that, again, and it's, it feels like, to me, a pastiche. It feels like somebody is doing noir and doing it, you know, very well. But it feels, I feel very aware of it calculating its effects whereas again when when wilder was doing double indemnity those effects were to tell the story you know there was no concept of film noir there was it was all the lighting all the all the the bars created by putting lights through through venetian blinds all that stuff was was really to kind of trap the characters and and tell a story and by the time of body heat i feel just very aware that i'm watching really good filmmakers doing a style as opposed to a really great filmmaker in in wilder creating a style as a way of getting into the soul of characters and for me that's the that's a huge difference in terms of my experience with you know anytime you feel that change i do enjoy those later nuars but they are style like heavily deliberately stylized i don't know if body heat is that much does have certain aspects of it but 
on a on a pro for body heat, you don't get the blowjob scene where he's the way he's recognised. Come on, that was good. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've got that implied coitus that happens in double indemnity but this it is made so explicit and it really does show i mean th- there was question as far as why does walter neff go with phyllis dietrichson why does that happen and you know the the answer from some critics is well she gave him a boner and there you go but in this one it is made very explicit why ned racine falls for maddie walker and it's like okay yeah because she is an amazing lay and they just fuck all the time and <laughs> They it do. works. <laughs> and this is, yeah, this is William Hurt in 1984, and he's looking pretty damn good, though. I, or 1981, I should say. Though I have to say, I couldn't take my eyes off of uh, uh, um, Mickey Rourke and Ted Danson. Those guys were just a sandwich. The whole thing, though, is so. It's got this, because it's set in the heat wave, isn't it? So that's the whole thing with the body heat and everyone's sweating and it's just so dirty and you wonder why everyone's in this film and it kind of feels wrong, but you can't stop watching it. <laughs> Mickey Rourke is an explosive ex- explosives expert. He's also like a petty criminal. Masterpiece. Him lip syncing to Bob Seger really took me by surprise. And Kathleen Turner's just so good. She's just, I love her anyway. And she's just so good. She was one of the best 80s femme fatales, I think. Man with Two Brains as well. Um, oh, God, even in War of the Roses. I mean, <laughs> she's just such a an amazing bitch, wasn't she? She made a, a huge impact on my young mind when I was when I was a kid growing up. Well, her and Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile. Just so good. Yeah, I mean, she was at, wasn't this like a breakout role, though? No, Man with Two Brains was before this, wasn't it? I think it was the same year, but I'm not sure which one came out first. Though I have to say, no, Man with Two Brains was 1983. I have to say that when I was rewatching Double Indemnity last night, I was cracking up at the supermarket scene because I just kept expecting Phyllis to turn her head and in that it would be Steve Martin underneath that wig because I saw dead men don't wear plaid so many times when I was growing up and I didn't even know what these movies were you know and then it's like years later I would catch little bits and be like oh my god that's from dead Dead men don't wear plaid this is fantastic (laughs) crazy about you baby I'm crazy about you too, Walter. Perfuming. What's the name of it? Fondle me. Silly. That's the name of the perfume. That's now you've said that actually, because Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and The Man with Two Brains. They were two films that I watched with my I'm said I watched Double Indemnity with my dad when I was older, but Dead Men Don't Wear Played, I watched as a kid. Like we watched all the Mel Brooks comedies. And that was the one that we would watch over and over. And I had no clue what the films were. <laughs> like, none. And, uh, yeah, now you said that. It's like, yeah, I didn't... Because um, my dad loves old classic film. But, yeah, we actually saw that first and a few years before as well. 
I remember a making of about Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid where they were talking about having to match the grain from the different films and the way that they would have to manipulate their footage to make it integrate with the older movies. And so when I'm seeing this beautiful Blu-ray of Double Indemnity, I'm just like, I wonder if they could go back now and restore Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and make it all look as good as this. I really want to go and watch it again because it's been so long since I've seen it. I don't know if Body Heat was the first of the erotic thrillers, but to me, it definitely kind of set that tone. And there were other ones that were coming out around the same time that also played into that noir thing, like Against All Odds and some other ones. And then it kind of morphed into that more fatal attraction, basic instinct kind of mold. But this one was definitely one of the sexier ones to me, though it has nothing on the 1977 film Eruption. Thanks for that, Mike. Yeah, that is uh, Sam Norville, who goes by Stanley Curlin in this one. And that is the one and only Mr. John Holmes as Pete Winston, (laughs) an insurance agent who I'm not sure if he's just on vacation in Hawaii or if he lives there. But they're definitely using that Hawaii location to the best of its ability and transporting double indemnity from Los Angeles over to the island and... Throwing in sex at every turn, and I especially appreciate that uh, they really make explicit that the uh, Nino character is fucking both the mother and the daughter, though not at the same time in this movie. <laughs> that is something that you have to go to a Pornhub these days for. I'm, I'm sorry, my friend, but... Which one was Nino? Was he the guy in the gym? I thought that Nino was the guy at the pool. He was the guy in the gym with the... With that white man's afro and that crazy (laughs) mustache? Yeah, that guy. Who was he supposed to be? So he starts having a threesome in the gym. And I just thought, who the... Who is this? Who is this? (laughs) I was actually, you know, trying to make a serious comparison (laughs) because of this podcast. Yeah, I was lost through a lot of this as far as who was who, though there are some lines. John Holmes is dropping some lines right from the original, so I'm like, wow, okay. You know, you salesmen are all alike. Timing's wrong. Too aggressive. Slow down. Don't you know there's a speed limit on this island? 55 miles per hour. Uh Uh-huh. And how fast would you say I was going? Oh, 100 miles per hour. Why don't you pull me over and give me a ticket? <laughs> Is that all you want, a ticket? Well, never mind what I want. Uh, how about what you want? Yeah, there are a lot of times where I'm like, I'm not sure where I'm at with this story. Is this something to do with Lola or something to do with with Phyllis? I can't really figure out what's happening right now. Yeah, who are these people? Why are they having sex? And then some of the acting limitations. The mood is good, though. Because they, <laughs> the murder is great. The way they fake, they can, it's done on like the boat with the diving accident. They bring him out. They bring out John Holmes as the husband, and I can't think he plays a husband. But John Holmes is 
acting as the husband. He's doing the whole broken leg thing and they bring him out on the jetty in broad daylight. Looks nothing like the other dude. And he's about, and he's about I don't know, 15 feet from them. And then they pretend he's drowned off the side of this boat in broad daylight. And then the guy he's watching was like, I knew when he fell off the boat he had a 50-50 chance. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> But it was definitely him. He doesn't look anything like the guy. He doesn't even try. He just puts a cast on. It's great. <laughs> I think he says something about, I have a similar shirt. And that, yeah. I mean, John <laughs> Holmes, we all like know what him. John Holmes looks like. And this other guy, <laughs> he looks closer to William Hurt than John Holmes. I mean, it's just, he's tall, he's blonde. Yeah, it just totally different and-, and they're just on this jetty a few feet away waving at these people who would be thinking who's that with what's her name well, he kissed her on the back of the hand though that's what the husband always does <laughs> kiss me on the hand <laughs> kisses are on something else as well I really appreciated the use of the split screen when there was uh, some fellatio going on <laughs> that was kind of nice there was a lot of fellatio in that movie Speaking of fellatio and speaking of jism, I couldn't believe that this movie from India from 2003, so the word for body apparently in this language is jism, for fuck's sake. (laughs) So there I am looking up jism 2003 and did I find a lot of interesting pictures. I've been laughing about this all week and that's no disrespect to Bollywood, but... I've just been laughing about this all week. I just keep saying jism. I know. I, I feel like we're some like lame ass podcast where we're a bunch of you know giggling assholes. But my God, is it so funny to have an erotic thriller just named Jism? For fuck's sake! It's actually very, very similar to Body Heat, apart from the fucking songs. Oh God, the songs. Well, to me, it was kind of a mashup of Body Heat and uh, Double Indemnity because there's a there's a couple things where I'm just like, oh, okay, this is right out of Double Indemnity. Oh, yeah. it's. I think their main reference is Body Heat, though, is they kept the wind chime thing. I mean, it looks really pretty. It's a pretty film. But it's over two hours long. Well, welcome to Bollywood, right? Yeah, and, like, when you've watched so many, when you've gone through the 1973 remake, and it's just like... Fucking hell, Mike. <laughs> I'm just going to stick jism on now, two hours, 13 minutes. It's like... Oh. <laughs> of the same story that you just watched the day before. Oh, thank you. No. I like the little song when he did the murder, though, showing that he was, you know, regretful. And also, because it was interesting, we are talking about Chandler being an alcoholic which isn't really part of double indemnity, but there's this weird thing about alcoholism in Jism. Like, the main guy seems to have a drink problem, the stepdaughter seems to have a drink problem, there's that scene in it where his cop friend casts him out from his house for coming in drunk, and (laughs) the main protagonist is, like, rolling around the streets, like, crying, drunk out of his mind, he's ringing up the Phyllis Dietrichson woman 
you know, when she's having a party with her husband and being all jealous and he's so much throwing glasses across the room and... I was surprised at how hot the movie was because I, you know, we talked about on the Body Double episode that there's a Bollywood version of Body Double and they have to take, you know, Holly Body, they take her from dancing naked in front of a window to her, you know, just basically doing like a Bollywood dance in front of a window. And whenever they have sex, it's the characters are basically like kissing and hugging and that's their equivalent. And watching this, I was like, oh, wow, they're kind of going out. Uh, on a limb here this is uh, there's some eroticism to this no it is quite steamy in parts it, it is quite i don't know anything about bollywood boys so i don't know if this was typical or not but the 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 scene scenes the love scenes were quite steamy i could have just done with about half an hour less of it i was jismed out by the end. <laughs> jismed out by the end of it cat just so you know there is a sequel yeah, I know, I do. There's <laughs> a jism too. <laughs> so if if you're craving more jism, Kat, I know where you can get some. <laughs> I would love to have known what Wilder thought of these more erotic, exotic remakes, because by 1981, it was 1981 when he did Buddy Buddy, which is his last film, which I love. I know he hated it, though. He felt that cinema had become too graphic and too grotesque. I mean, that one's great. I don't know if either of you guys have seen it. It's uh, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau's a hitman and Jack Lemmon's going to commit suicide in the hotel room next door. And he's disturbing Walter Matthau who's trying to make a hit. So that's the concept. But Jack Lemmon's wife has run off with Kaus Kinsey, who owns the sex sort of guru retreat. <laughs> and it's uh, so that's quite crude for a Wilder. But even in that, you know, he didn't feel comfortable about that. So I wonder what he would have made a jism. <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I don't know whether he would have approved. I think Wilder was at his best always within the code era and the pre-code era. Because where he was really good was, and he learned a lot of this from Lubitsch, was getting around those limitations. And so with things like Double Indemnity, you know, it becomes so clever because it's right out there in the open, but it's not. There's nothing the censors can actually do about it because it's so... Um, and that's where he worked best. And then when the Hayes Code slipped away and cinema changed, I think Wilder found himself a bit out of place there. And it was harder for him. I mean, I love all his films, even the later ones. But I know his last film he wasn't happy with and he wasn't happy with how cinema had changed. And it just isn't the appreciation for that sort of subtlety either anymore. So... Bring back the innuendo. It's sexier than jism. I always say that cinema is better when it has restraints to it and the way that people will go about getting around those. I mean, we've talked so many times about Czechoslovakian films made during the Russian war occupation. And it's just like, yeah, here you go. Here's, here's a pretty big uh, <laughs> censorship thing that you need to get around in the way that they did was pretty fantastic you get so much ingenuity like when everything is allowed it's no longer i don't know there's nothing subversive or naughty about it and it takes the edge off it's like when you can drink and you're an adult it's not as good (laughs) it's like 
the same thing. But then you look at some preco films like Morocco, for example, me and Sam did commentary for that recently. And there's a scene in that where Gary Cooper comes into this club and he's talking to this uh, hostess or barmaid or whatever she is. I can't remember the line. I was trying to think of this yesterday. It's nothing about hand jobs, but you listen to it and you think, did he just ask her for a hand job? <laughs> and, and, but it's like that. And you'd have to remember the line, but it's just like, whoa. You know, because they couldn't do that, it just becomes a bit more sophisticated. And, of course, I love erotic cinema. I write so much about European erotic cinema, but I do really, really appreciate the sophistication of people like Wilder and Lubitsch and von Sternberg. You know, had to work around these very rigid Puritan codes. There's just something about... Something the anarchist in me just loves, loves the whole thing about it. And it also requires a little bit of brain power to like understand it as well. So, like that as well. If you know if you're in on the joke with them, it feels kind of special. Well, there's also for me as a viewer, there's like this bell curve of eroticism. I mean, it's like if you're talking about almost like you know actual real pornography where people are actually having sex, there's there is an eroticism there that I that I can, can get. But when you're dealing with kind of a fake sexuality, which is what I think of like a Hollywood sexuality, in some ways the innuendo is much hotter than watching actors not having sex to me. You know, it's like watching it just always feels like I'm very aware I'm watching actors faking it. Whereas when good actors have real sexual tension between them and it's going on in the scene and in the dialogue, I actually my heart's racing a lot more. Then when I go, oh, yeah, and, you know, they're both kind of clothed just below camera and whatever. I mean, I just feel like it, it to me, that's it's very hard to make that particularly erotic. And, and, and the earlier films where it's done by implication, I actually find that I feel a lot more. Oh, it's definitely it's more teasing. You have to work harder to figure it out. You get a lot more tension in it. Whereas in something like Body Heat, instead of this very veiled scene where you think afterwards, hey, you know, if they just had sex you know you get Kathleen Turner splayed out like a starfish with her ass out and it's just not the same it's not the same it's just like where's the mystery all right guys we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show Where'd you come here? Where I come from, there's a terrible drought. We saw pictures of your planet on television. We saw the water. In fact, our word for your planet means planet of water. I like freaks. That's why I like you. Oh, I guess that was happening, In, say, three years, what would this be worth to me? $300 million? Not more. I need more. What the hell for? That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Nicholas Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Keith. So, Keith, what is happening in your world lately, sir? 
Oh, I just finished doing an episode. Jason Siegel's got this new show that he's creating for AMC uh, called Dispatches from Elsewhere, and I really like it. It's really odd and weird and fanciful and whimsical, and he wrote the pilot and directed it and plays one of the leads in it, and I think he kind of has created something sort of wonderful. So I just did, just went and did an episode, directed an episode of it and really, really enjoyed it, and so I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how it all pieces together. It's a, it's a genre that I'm very drawn to, which is kind of a slightly surrealist but but there's just an odd sweetness to it all. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of, of something like Time Bandits or something, where it's just it's a little bit of an alternate universe uh, and very playful. It's like a fable for it's like it's like a kids book for adults sort of feeling. And uh, so it was really lovely to work on. Anything else uh, in the hopper? Well, that and that and you know, I have my passion projects that I'm endlessly trying to inch along. I'm about to, I'm also going to go off and do two episodes of Fargo. Um, you know, for this fourth season of Fargo, it's being shot now. I, you know, I keep going back to that show because I, I, you know, I, I love working on things that I love as a viewer, uh, and I really enjoy Noah Hawley's writing and his work. So, uh, so I'm going to go back and do the last two of se- last two episodes of season four, you know, for some of the winter, and then I've got the movies I've been trying to make for 15 years that I just go back to again. And Kat, what has been keeping you busy until Brexit finally happens? I've been really, really, really busy this month actually, but most of the things I can't say what they are, but I'm still. Hammering away on Castro Bot, it's coming. I commissioned the cover the other day. And what else? Our Michael Reeves documentary that I wrote and co-produced called The Magnificent Obsession of Michael Reeves about the British filmmaker Michael Reeves who died very young. We did a documentary on his life and his work. Uh, that is actually now available through Analysts in Germany have done a Blu-ray of Reeves is the Sorcerer, so it's exclusive to that because Analyst part produced it as well. We've done the festivals. So now people can actually buy that if they buy the Sorcerer's disc, but they were not going to be able to. I got, I've had people going, I'm going to wait till it comes on iTunes, and I just think it's never going to come on iTunes, so just... <laughs> you have to buy the disc, sorry. You know, <laughs> it's not happening. Um, I did a thing for Arrow's release of Nightbreed, which just came out and got to talk all about Clive Barker and Decadence and the occult and all my favourite things. Um, and then commentary-wise, I did Roger Vadim's version of Dangerous Liaisons, which came out by Kino. I did a booklet essay for the Old Boy limited edition release, which has the, the Vengeance films on it. Um, and what else? And then The Whisperers in the Owl-Shaped Room for Kino as well, commentaries on them, which are two just really great classic British films. So I got to talk all about my class chip and upper class people and how I can't stand them and all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> I'm sure Americans won't be able to understand those, though. You mean just because of your accent? <laughs> my dialect, Mike. <laughs> Call Brimey Governor. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.